worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, verse 5, I'll just go ahead and read this one to get us started. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So what's the clear command that we are not supposed to do? Now, I know this gets confusing in our world because people then say you can't ever say anything's right or anything's wrong. Not what he's saying. What he's saying is you can't know everything there is to know. It's like when you, well... You guys might not do this a lot, but if as a pastor, you, you talk with one spouse, they're having trouble, you, you always know you don't have the full story. You've got to talk to the other spouse, too. Well, you never have the full story. You never even have the, the full story with your own heart when you're judging yourself. You just don't know everything that's going on. Um, and a lot of times we are quick. To judge and Paul's saying don't make those judgments now don't make the final assessment of somebody it's not wrong to say that a particular action's wrong or right it's not wrong to to call sin sin otherwise you could never confront somebody uh would you know those are true but he just don't ever make that final judgment on a person you just are not in a position to do that and so and so what does it say will happen on that day when the Lord comes to judge? Uh, okay, final judgment. Right, so, um, it can be whether they are saved or not saved, but that's only one element of it. Um, it goes more personal than that. It's the evaluation of your life as a whole and in all of its particulars. You know, I I remember having a conversation with David Pope one time, and um, we were talking about trying to be good husbands, you know, and, and he says, well, I'm not finished yet, and the judgment's not out yet. Like, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of time to go, uh, and, and we just don't know everything that's, uh, uh, we don't know everything about everything we've tried to do. It's hard to make those judgments, and in this it, it, it's more than just am I saved or not saved because he's evaluating the life that you have lived. It's asking yourself, have I been a good mom? Have I, have I loved my kids well? Have I uh, been faithful as a, you know, a doctor? Or have I, have I done what God wants me to do in life? And you know, of what, what's the evaluation of my life as a whole? That's kind of more of what we're talking about. And 
And because uh, Paul says, I have a clean conscience that I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing as a pastor. But that doesn't make me innocent. I mean, there's there's things that I just don't know about and I can't see every angle and you don't know the deep recesses of your heart and what are your inner motivations on everything. It's it's just hard to see all that right now. And so Paul, I mean, he never would encourage you to go against your conscience. He would want you to have a clean conscience, but he also wants you to not, in the end, your trust is not that you have somehow perfectly understood life, evaluating yourself or evaluating other people. You're just humbly saying, my God will judge it all perfectly in the end. Because what does he do here? Um, first off, does that answer your question? It's final judgment, but it's more than just saved or not saved. Um, so what does he say will happen on that judgment day? Everything. And he goes into these details. Things now hidden in darkness. And that might scare you, you know. You might learn things about yourself you didn't even know about yourself. Um, the very purposes of the heart. You know, a lot of times we impute motives when somebody does something. We think we not automatically know what their motives are. Well, you don't always know their motives, right? And one of the things that we should do in a church is to try to never impute evil motives if we can, right? We always want to believe the best. My, my illustration of that is in Gone with the Wind, uh, Melanie, right? I mean, she just is always thinking of the best. <laughs> um, even maybe when she shouldn't sometimes, but she's thinking of the best. <laughs> um, and so this is, God will bring everything to light. He will know every little dark recess of the heart. He'll know every, and you, you might think, oh, no, that's really scary. But again, I keep stressing it's the most joyful thing because if you're in Christ, everything that's evil in you really belongs to your old nature, which was crucified, right? Was crucified at the cross, and you're supposed to be putting that to death your whole life, but at that final judgment, the... the full extent of this evil nature will be seen for what it is and it will be burned up and the new heart the new heart which when you trust in christ you have a new heart it's been given it's a new creation that new heart is also producing works that god has created in advance for you to do and those works will be clearly seen to Christ and to us and to the world that those works have been done because God has given you a new heart. And so you, what's, what's not of the new heart will be burned away and what is of the new heart will remain. And, and that's what we all want anyway. Right? I mean, I don't want to be people to think that portions of my old heart were really good you know there's little you think that this is a good part of the new heart when it really wasn't a part of the new heart and so you want this final evaluation not because we'll be shown to not be in christ at all 
If you're trusting in Christ, it's the old nature that gets burned up. The new heart remains because it's incorruptible and your inheritance is given to you in Christ. So you have this, it's scary, it makes you not want to be a hypocrite, but it also is freeing. Because in this, in knowing the truth, you'll finally see what is about you that is a product of God's grace and His new heart, and what is being burned away. Is that making sense to you guys, how this is? that I'm ashamed of, that I, that I still commit, you know, and it's, I hate it, you know, and, and, but I don't want to go into glory having all that hidden. It's, I want it all exposed, you know, um, for what it is. be disclosed so you don't have to face it (laughs) (laughs) well you're not going to face it i mean you have the promise of the gospel which says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus so ultimately what's of the old nature can't really condemn you right so so it can't do that it just gets burned away and what's left is all of what christ is doing and that's what we want anyway so um This is how perfect justice is served. Because not only will you have a fuller experience of seeing the depth of your sin, because Christ already knew the depth of your sin when he went to the cross, I mean, he knew the full extent of it at that moment. So he already knows the full extent of your sin. Therefore, when he went to the cross, he paid for the full extent of your sin. You're just not fully aware of it yet. And so you'll be made fully aware of it, not so that you can just feel awful about yourself, but for, so you can see the extent of what Christ has done for you. Right? And this is a, and the world can see that God was not unjust. He didn't overlook. He didn't hide sin. It wasn't a cover-up. God was fully aware of all the sin that all the people that his, were His people committed, and He has paid the penalty, not just generally for sin, but every single sin that you have committed, He's paid the price for. And the world will see that on that judgment day. And we will be exalting Christ, not just going, oh man, I really know Junior's worse than he said he was. That won't be what we're saying. We'll be seeing how glorious Christ is, and we'll all be bowing before him on that day. So it's not, we kind of think it's a tit for tat, oh, I'm better than you, and you know, that's not what it's about. It's about either seeing um, God's grace in the new heart, or his perfect justice burning away everything that's evil, those sorts of things. Unless, unless you're not really saved, you're not really trusting in Christ, then it would be condemnation, right? And that's what we're asking people to to think about in the gospel. We all will have to stand before God and, quote-unquote, give an account of our works before God. And 
And it will be shown, proven, either true or false, that your faith was genuine. And so you don't want to ever play games with God. Not that your faith was perfect. So I would say, in this life, encourage people. Maybe you're talking to someone and they, they feel really terrible about themselves. And you have an opportunity to encourage them. Maybe see good things that you see in them. Do that. Uh, affirm them as much as you're able, you know, in Christ. Confront people at times. If, you, if they've really done something that has been you know, sinful and you think you need to confront them, you can confront them. But in confronting them, leave room for God's perfect assessment. Don't act like you are the judge and you know all things. Um, allow room for there to be more to the story. And, uh, and then you ho- approach people humbly. And I tell you, I've tried to do this. I don't know I don't do it imperfectly. I do do it imperfectly. But people take it a lot better. If they don't feel like you are up on a pedestal, assuming that you know everything, assuming that you've got it perfect, uh, if they don't feel that way, you're holier than thou, like looking down on them, judging them, they know it. They know that if you're like this humble person, and this is what I'm seeing, maybe I'm wrong in this, you know, uh, you tell me, talk about your, search your own heart, you know, and you're, you're acknowledging that you're not the judge and that God's going to judge you for your faults too, then people, people feel that. They feel your humility. And maybe they wouldn't accuse the church so much of just being hypocrites and holier than thou and always judging if we had this kind of humble attitude. So this is something that, you know, we're not, we don't deny there's right and wrong. We don't even deny that there's a time to say that someone's actions are right or wrong. But we're just doing it with humility, acknowledging that we don't know everything. Comments or questions on this? This moment here where he's bringing the things to light, would this be uh, shortly after this? I would imagine for the saved, there would be some sorrow. Oh when yeah! You see the evil. Is this would this tie into the verses where he talks about wiping the tear from our eyes? Oh yeah, I yeah, and, and yeah. Ezekiel d- talks about the same thing that that even in glory there's this beautiful joy and things, but there's also a, uh, a just an acknowledgement of the grief of the evil that you've done and the sins and yeah. I, I don't know if that's a permanent thing, but I do think this idea of wiping the tears from your eyes and that yeah, I mean there's this freedom of being. Uh, you know, that's gone, but it, it's similar to even now if you've got a person who's walked away from the Lord, they've come back to Christ, they're walking with Christ, they have joy with Christ, but they still, as they look back on that previous portion of their life, there's sadness over that and tears, and so, yeah. Very good, Davis. <clears throat> All right, let's look at 6 through 7. 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7. Uh, uh, who do I want to have read this? Uh, Sam. I have Sam read. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7.
In these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for, for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from one another? And what hast thou that thou didn't receive? Now, hmm. if you didn't receive, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? Okay, he's taking this to a whole different level. Um, Paul's already said that he sees himself as a servant and as a steward. Uh, he doesn't care about anyone but God's judgment. That's the most important. And God's going to judge him whether he's faithful or not. He doesn't exalt himself or tear himself down. Um, but what is he... He's... he's Working out this whole situation in verse 6 as it applies to Apollos and other apostles and ministers of the gospel. But then what does he tell us in verse 7? What does he tell us in verse 7? Right, so, so if there's something, uh, when it says that, who sees something different in you, it's like, distinguishing one person not just from another but above another like what distinguishes you as being better than another person or worse than another person right and then what does he say right after that do not boast because everything you have you've been given Everything that distinguishes you as who you are is a gift from God. Now, why is that hard for us to accept? Because <laughs> we're Americans. That's good. Uh, Paul, was, Paul said the Corinthians were uh, um, struggling with it, too. So We're proud. Right. So, and I used to love to say this to um, the young people. I mean, this is the deal that we get. If there's bad in you, you get the credit. If there's good in you, who gets the credit? God. <laughs> but who wants the credit? <laughs> right? <laughs> uh Think about things in your life that you like about yourself. Why are there the why are there those things in your life? Because God has graciously given them to you. That's hard to accept and really believe. Paul will say things, I worked harder than everyone else. Ah, but it's really just the grace of God working in me. Right? I mean, he gives all the credit to God's grace working in him. 
And it's hard to live life approaching life with that sort of humility. It's just hard to do. We're either feeling terrible about ourselves because we don't match up, which God says, ah, yeah, feel terrible about yourself for a little while, but remember who you are in Christ. And then you start feeling good about yourself, and you say, remember who you are in Christ. Right? All right, let's read 8 through 13. Yeah. What is written, I would call the gospel message. What they were doing is saying that in addition to the gospel message, it gets better because you follow Paul. Or that you followed Apollos. And he's saying, no, no, that's not, the, that's not it. This is all there is right here. Don't go beyond that. Don't go beyond the greatness of the gospel, and to add to it the greatness of Paul. Because if there is greatness in Paul, it's just a product of the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel. I, I interrupted you. Finish your question. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's that's true, um, and that's basically adding adding to the gospel itself, and and but see. And that's, that is a true problem. And actually in uh, Colossians this morning, we're going to talk about the danger of adding to that gospel. Okay, But uh, Paul would not accuse Apollos of adding to the gospel, and nor would Paulus accuse Paul. They're both preaching the gospel message. It's just that in people's minds, they are attributing too much to the, to the minister and not enough just to the message itself. So this is a problem of them in their minds doing this rather than uh, the actual minister adding themselves to the gospel, which, which does happen, and that's what's happened in Colossians. So, is that helpful? Because that, I, I, I think as a minister, you have to be clear that you just stick to the word. <laughs> don't go beyond that. You know, don't... Right. <laughs> yep. That's good. All right, 8 through 13. Uh, Kyle, do you want to read for us? Oh, you got, oh, you got Howard. Hey, I didn't know you were already there. Phil Donahue's already got the mic right there for him. <laughs> he had me picked. <laughs> 8 through 13. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you had really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, 
like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are, you are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags, we're brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth and refuse of the world. Hmm. So if you can't feel this, Paul is using sarcasm. Okay? Um, you feel satisfied. Think of, um, think of Jesus saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. He's saying, well, you already feel satisfied, even though you're not. You think you have all you need, right? Even without us. You believe yourself to be exalted like a king. Now, you have to understand, the Corinthians had been given, by God's grace, a ton of spiritual gifts. They spoke in tongues. They prophesied. You know, they were doing things that not every church was doing <laughs> at this time. And so they got really proud of themselves. Really arrogant about that. And he says that you, that these, it, when they say things like, oh, I don't follow Paul, I follow Apollos, they're basically saying that they, the, not just Apollos, uh, but the, the Corinthians, have progressed further than Paul. We're smarter than Paul. We're, we're not followers of Paul, we're followers of Apollos. Imagine thinking that, like you've, you've gone beyond the apostles. Uh, and so they're, they're arrogant in this, and they're self-sufficient in the way that they think. And so Paul pushes the point. He's like, I wish you really were this great, because you're not. Um, and then he starts talking about apostles. And on the totem pole, in Paul's mind, as he's arguing here, where are, the, where are the apostles? They're the last of all. They're at the bottom of the list, in the world's eyes, to their eyes. Even though that, ultimately, where would you and I, in a correct evaluation of apostles, how should we think about them? We should look up to them. They're the highest. They're the ones that God chose to actually give us the word of God. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, and Paul's just saying, you've flipped the evaluation completely. You've, you've got so much pride, so much arrogance that you've, you've uh, reduced us to not that important at all. But at the same time, even though the apostles have a pretty exalted position, they don't act like it, do they? Now, who are they emulating when they act so humble and lowly? Christ, Philippians 2, even though he was, a, you know, in nature, in form, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. They, they willingly accepted the low position. They weren't striving for greatness. They were willing to be low. Marked by humiliation, marked 
been uh, by suffering. And Paul says that these apostles are on display. Who are they on display to? The whole universe, both angels and men. Now, just in case you question how exalted of a position that the apostles have, the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 20, 18 said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, you twelve disciples who are also my apostles, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's a pretty exalted position in the new heavens and new earth, right? In Revelation 21, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. It's a pretty exalted position. And yet in this life, they are not honored, and they are okay with that. How often do we do the exact opposite? We're not as highly exalted as them, and yet we're seeking honor. And Paul says the apostles were being watched. And he says, kind of like Job. Remember how God says, look at my servant Job. Watch him. And and what what God's concerned about is not how high a position the apostles have. He's the one that gives them that position. He's saying, look at how they're suffering and being humble about it. Do you bless those who curse you? Are you willing to be called a fool? Those are the things that that Paul says matters to them. The Corinthians are striving after wisdom and strength and honor. And Paul says the, the apostles are called fools. They're weak. They're dishonored. This is hard. I mean... It's easy to teach it. It's hard to live it. Hard to act this way. How often is your honor offended? This always makes me smile after studying this kind of stuff. In the past, uh, revolutionary period, you always hear about people doing duels. Why are they doing a duel? Because their honor has been offended, and they've got to somehow you know, work that out. And I'm thinking, have they not read Corinthians? I mean, they're Christians that are doing this, right? You offended my honor, and I've got to get it back. Well, the apostles' honor was offended every day. Treated like they were the scum of the earth. Treated like they were trash. It reminded me, someone gave me a book that... uh, they use this as the title, being a spectacle to the world. That's probably not the exact title, but so this, I think it was a Reformed pastor and some others from his church were had to go to Nazi prison camp and survive. At least this one man survived. And I forget about what the testimonies were as far as maybe conversions and so forth, but that was his main point is, you know, why would God let, let this happen to us? Well, to make us a spectacle to the world. That's right. That's, that's really well said. And we think that when Christians are treated poorly, that somehow God's off his throne, we've done something wrong, you know, and he's just saying, no, this is, the apostles were treated that way. Kind of changes even our thinking about the world in which we live now, doesn't it? 
Is it absolutely necessary that we gain control so that we can control and make sure people give us honor as Christians? Or is it okay that God takes us through a period of where we're not dishonored? You have a greater opportunity to be a spectacle to the world being treated poorly as Christians. I'm not saying hope for that. Nobody wants suffering. But it does change the way you think about life. Notice how the apostles do not defend themselves. When reviled, what do they do? Verse 12, they bless. When persecuted, what do they do? Endure it. They don't demand the rights. When slandered, answer kindly or entreat God to bless them or, you know, do something nice. Don't, don't tear them down like they're tearing you down. But notice, and this is important in our day and age, notice that Paul doesn't say, oh, maybe it's my own fault. Uh, maybe I did something wrong and this is what's bringing this upon me in my life of suffering. He doesn't think that way. That's the way we think. What did I do wrong? Paul's confident where he is. Um, even though he doesn't fully judge himself. Any other comments on this? I just think this is so radical to our, my natural way of thinking. It did not destroy the church, did it? Those who persecuted the, the apostles are gone. The church continues on. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And true, I, I mean, I think that's good. I, but I think you could take it too far and think it's distinguishing yourself, right? Rather than seeing it as God's grace that is making that distinction. It's not a, it's, it's not, you don't go out seeking persecution. <clears throat> right, yes. We're not trying to avoid persecution, that's for sure. <clears throat> Other thoughts or comments before we move on? You guys have such good comments. I like to hear them. What's that? Siri had a comment. All right. <laughs> All right, 14 to 17. Where's our mic now? Anywhere you want to give it. There you go. 14 to 17? Yep. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Okay, so if you're, you're picking out this, this pride of the Corinthians and you're just nailing them to the wall, 
you would think that Paul just, you guys are hypocrites. How do you even call yourself a Christian? You guys are terrible. And then he says, not Paul. He doesn't treat that way. He says, oh, I'm not, I'm not saying this to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to, to shame you. I'm not trying to even call you a hypocrite. I'm not trying to, think of the balance that he has here. Really awesome. He says, yeah, I want to admonish you. I want you to see that there's something better than this pride that you have. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really trying to make you feel bad about yourself. He, what does he call them? His children. My, my beloved children. Again, if we picked out so much pride in somebody, we'd say, oh, guy's not a Christian. Arrogant. You know, whatever. And Paul says, no. You're my beloved children. Yeah, you're arrogant right now. But you're my beloved child. Try to hold that in balance. And I would argue that he is following Christ in this because no Christian will be eternally shamed. You've done shameful things. You do shameful things. But... God is not in the business of eternally shaming you. In fact, if you're trusting in Christ, you will never be put to shame. Right? Isn't that what it says? But because he loves them, he has to admonish them. And I'll give you, you know, this is an old illustration that I've probably used before. You may have heard it. But I love this. Uh, The book on the Civil War called Killer Angels by Jeff Shara um, made a movie of it. Um, what's it called? The movie, um, Gettysburg. Yeah, that's probably Gettysburg. That's right. I was thinking gods and generals, and that's the next one. So Gettysburg, and so here's um, if you know in this battle, Jeb Stewart is like this great cavalry officer, uh, but he does have a flair for trying to distinguish himself and be honored and stuff like that. So he he goes off. He's supposed to be the eyes and ears of Lee's army. And he goes off on this cavalry ride, and he literally goes all the way around the Union Army, gaining great glory for himself. But while he's doing that, he's left Lee with no, he has no idea where the enemy is. And he's surprised at Gettysburg, and a big part of the reason why the South loses that battle is because uh, Stuart doesn't do his job. He's gaining glory for himself, but he's not doing his job. And so in the movie... Uh, which I think is probably dramatized, but it's still accurate. Stuart finally comes in on like the second day of battle, maybe the, the night of the second day of battle, so two days of battle occurred. He finally comes in, glorious trumpets, you know, and, and Lee brings him into his office, and Lee just chews him out up and down. And, and it, I mean, Jeb Stuart's probably never received that kind of chewing out from, you know, Robert E. Lee. And so Jeb Stuart just takes his sword out, and hands it to Lee and says, I no longer have your confidence. You know, I'm in shame. Yeah, yeah. And Lee just stomps his hand on the table and says, I do not have time for this. You are my best officer and I need you now. And I just thought, man, what a great, that's, you know, you admonish someone, but not to tear them down, not to get rid of them, but you just take this, learn from it. In the, in the movie, he takes the sword and he puts it back in. He says, learn from this and move on. And that's, what, that's Christian life. Uh, we don't admonish people to tear them down, to destroy them, but to help them move forward in life. 
He loves them. Paul says that you have countless guides in Christ, but there is something special about him because he is the one who actually brought them the gospel at first, and so he has this special affection for them because he he has brought them the gospel at first. Um, And so, don't think of me as in greater honor, but surely have affection for me, he says, because, because I am your father in the Lord. Have a deeper love for me. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's helpful, too, as we think about people that we love, ministers, pastors. There's nothing wrong with having a deep affection for a particular uh, minister as they have uh, influenced you and affected you. Um, but just don't take it too far. Because see, there's factions in the church, right? And so the church is being divided into different sections. And there were very few people who didn't latch into one of those sections. So, And it's not saying that there weren't anybody in the church that could have been humble. But he is addressing the church generally rather than just looking at an individual. Same. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, when he says, uh, mine just says countless guides. Yours says 10,000 guardians. <laughs> yeah, I think he's just speaking hyperbolically. Uh, hyperbolically. Um, He's just talking about even if you had 10,000 teachers, um, you you only have one father. I'm the one that actually first brought the gospel to you to where you first believed. And so I consider you like you're my son. Mm -hmm. Which, and this is... This is just me randomly thinking. But, you know, we always talk about equal love for everybody. God loves everybody equally. Well, does the very concept of building a family where you have a father and the father has a special appreciation for their own son, that's built into the whole fabric of society. God wants you, when he calls you a child of God, when he calls you his son or daughter, he wants you to feel like, oh, you have a special love for me that's greater than the love that you have for the lost. And so Paul is even acknowledging that here in his own relationship with them. These other guides probably taught them well, but man, I, my heart just goes out to you. That's <laughs> what he's basically saying. Okay, 18 to 21. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. 
For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Hmm. So Paul is sending to them Timothy, and whether someone went ahead and gave word of this or he just anticipates this, um, what does he think that some of the Corinthians are going to conclude when Paul doesn't actually come? That he doesn't care? I do think that's, yeah, Paul doesn't care. Okay, so there's, so, and I would put this that, this is, this is man's idea. Paul's not man enough to face us. <laughs> He's going to send somebody else to fight his own battle. What's that? That's right. Yep. <clears throat> Very good, Howard. I like that. Uh, what's the only thing that would keep Paul from coming to Corinth? The Lord, right? Uh, but if he does come, right, if Paul gets there, what is he going to find out? What is he looking for when he gets there? What's that? He wants to know if it's just talk or if it's power. Are they, are they going to fall through on this, their attitudes, dig in deeper, or are they going to have humility to rein in? Their arrogance. When it says the kingdom of God is talk and not power, a lot of times people think, oh, yes, spiritual gifts or, or um, you know, like dynamic things that are happening. But the Corinthians had all experienced that power. That's, that's not really the power he's talking about. <clears throat> what do you think the power is? That he's hoping to see. I was going to say overcoming sin. Overcoming sin. Repentance. Humility. That's exactly right. That's, that's this, this humble gentleness, blessing those who reviled. I mean, is it, it, is it going to be this? This is what I want to see in you. Or are you going to dig in your heels and still continue to act arrogantly? According to your speech. <clears throat> Paul talks about coming with a rod. He's talking about a literal rod. No, he's not going to actually beat him. More, more harshness, more firmness. Might have to ex execute church discipline on them. He doesn't want this to happen, but he would do it. <clears throat> right because he's an apostle yep yes <laughs> that's right yep Ro go ahead okay yeah yeah uh he says they've, they've lost the balance of uh, uh 
God is a God of love and God is a God of justice. I love these passages too because I've told you before that this is Paul dealing with practical issues, but you can see his theology behind it. I mean, you could, would you ever say that God is love, that he just overlooks the wrong in the world? No, Paul's saying, no, it's gonna, everything's going to be shown to light. You're going to see every dark deed for what it is. God's going to judge it. You know, I mean, he's, that's not just ignoring sin. That's not overlooking sin. That's not just being nice to people, you know, even when they need to be confronted. None of that. So you can see his theology working out. Uh, he, he, wouldn't, he would hold both of these together. Is what I'm saying. So, <clears throat> Romans fourteen seventeen says, "For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit." The power that this is me. The the power that Paul desires is the power of the Holy Spirit to make the Christian willing to give up honors and be considered scum for the sake of Christ. That's the power he wants. That's when God starts saying, look at my kid. All right, we have, we have finally finished. It's taken us like three or four weeks to get through this section on how we think about people. But in my opinion, it's maybe one of the most life-transforming practical things in daily life on how I think about people. Um, how I should try to be humble in my life. Not... Humility is not insignificant. I mean, I, I value my life as very significant. But I, I, it's not about the things that I think are make it significant. It's just that God chooses to use me as an instrument. And every one of you should think about your life that way. What is God? He's doing something in your life. The grace of God is doing some work in you, displaying to the world His grace. That's what he's doing. And you're a, you're a little facet of that that's different than everyone else. You're going to, on the judgment day, you will be one particular jewel in the crown of Christ's grace. That's how you think of this. Uh, you won't be going, oh, well, I'm better than that person. You're just like, look, we're all in the crown. It's his grace. He's done it. But I'm a jewel in that crown. And it's, it's, it's the right, healthy way to think about our lives. I'm actually going to finish four minutes early unless someone has a question. <laughs> oh, no, we got a question. Go ahead, Susan. Yeah. And I find that very perplexing because honor is not restored. You've just wiped out your enemy. So how how? Well, I think most honor? of the guys that did duels, I think that neither of them really cared of whether they died. I think it was the – I stood up and I faced – 
those guns were not very accurate, and very rarely did someone die. Sometimes they did, but they, they, it was just this, whoever shot first actually got the greater shame, and then the other person could, a lot of times they would just shoot down or something like that. They'd regain their honor. Anyway, it, the whole system, I don't understand it completely, but it is really, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, system, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. That we know of. <laughs> All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word. Lord, we, we have a lot to be admonished for. Um, I can get offended and defensive when just the smallest bit of my honor is attacked. And... Um, Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts with power, that as we uh, grow in Christ, uh, we would think more like Paul and the other apostles. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to treat each other with love and kindness and humility, even when we do have to admonish each other. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.